Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, and uh, if you are just walking into the room now or you're just joining us online, I want to say uh, we're glad that you joined us. Welcome also to everyone who's over in the bonus room. Hello, it's glad, glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, well, hey, today we are continuing our teaching series about power, and during this series we have been reflecting on some of the emerging cultural beliefs about power while also exploring what the Bible teaches us about power. So if you have a Bible handy... I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, whether it's paper or digital, however you want to get there. Um, we've also handed you notes on the way in today and online. You can go to the crosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and, and you can look there um, to follow along. We've also got some suggested resources that are on the back of that sheet that's going to help you as we track through this series. Um, today, we are going to be talking about hidden powers. And these are powers that are largely ignored in our present-day discourses about power. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot talk about power and yet ignore these powers. So what are hidden powers? Well, the Bible uh, talks about powers that are at work in our world behind the scenes. And these are not always obvious. They're not always like self-evident to the naked eye. Yet from cover to cover, the Bible details Many encounters with celestial beings, with angels, with demons, with heavenly hosts, and so forth. And the Bible reveals to us that there are other powers that are work in our world, which may in fact be hidden. Now, if you live in Canada, okay, this marks a pretty significant departure from our common cultural understanding of power. Because for the most part, in our culture, we are a culture of materialists. What do I mean by that? As a materialist, it means that we believe that this world is all there is. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no spiritual reality, there's no, there's no eternity, there's no God. All of reality, as we know it, is simply molecules and atoms that have kind of bounced around for hundreds of millions of years into random collisions, until eventually, pff, we eventually got life. So we are living in a material world, and we are material beings. Now, the neglect of hidden powers is even further reinforced by what we would call our postmodern mood. And if you're tracking with us for the first couple of weeks of this series, we talked about this postmodern mood. Uh, the postmodern mood, if you remember, is ultimately suspicious of meta narratives. In other words, in our postmodern culture that we're living in now, there are no big stories especially no big God stories. So you, you cannot claim that there's like a, a universal story for reality, one, one that imposes itself on all human beings and that all human beings are, are, are subject to. And this is because in our postmodern mood, all truth is a matter of perspective. And not only that, most of our truths are, are simply discourses that were created by powerful people to control the less powerful and to support their own interests. And that includes the church. So uh, the question would then be, aren't hidden powers, you know, when the church talks about hidden powers, aren't hidden powers just kind of another power game that the church is using, that was invented by the church, to scare people into submission? That's how the, how the postmodern mood might, might frame it. So the question I have before you this morning is simply this. What do you think about this? Do you think that there are actually hidden powers at work in our world? And if there are, 
How do we respond to these hidden powers? Well, to answer this question this morning, I, I want to look at a passage of Scripture. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read through it together. I'll, I'll read it. You can, you can follow along. Uh, this portion of Scripture was part of a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a church in the city of Ephesus a couple thousand of years ago. Is a church that uh, he had a part, a real deep relationship with, part of planting, and uh, these people were really dear to his heart. And he's reminding them that they should be prepared to um, respond to these hidden powers. So, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert uh, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. This is the word of God. Can we pray together? Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thank you that uh, you have given it to us as this great gift, and that through your word, you reveal to us yourself. You reveal to us your plans and your purpose for us. God, you reveal to us your goodness and your love, and, and ultimately, God, how you want to transform us to become like you. So God, I, I ask today that you would take this word and you would make it alive in our hearts. And that you reveal to us all these things for your name's sake, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right. Hey, let's walk through this text together. Uh, Paul gives us three responses to hidden powers. He says we should know the struggle, we should take a stand, and we should use God's strategy. Let's walk through each of these. Number one, here's the first response. Know the struggle. Paul says that we are wrestling against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces and evil in the heavenly places. What is he ultimately talking about? Well, it, he seems to be referring to what we would call demons or demonic powers. Okay, so the Bible actually uses a lot of different terms to describe these different spiritual forces. Um, in the Gospels, of course, there, the, you, you experience and encounter demons and de demonic powers. Uh, Paul in Colossians 2a calls them elementary, uh, elemental spirits. Another place he calls them rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Another place he talks about uh, angels, authorities, and powers, or angels, rulers, or powers. Okay, so there's a lot of different terms used to describe essentially these same things, these demonic forces, demo de demonic powers in Scripture. Now, the best biblical understanding of knowing what these are uh, about demons is that they are fallen angels or celestial beings. They're essentially people, uh, in, sorry, not people, <laughs> they're essentially celestial beings who followed Satan in his rebellion against God. 
And ultimately, what they're trying to do is they're trying to oppose God and his workings in creation. And they're also trying to steal worship away from God and to give it to themselves. Now, I, I wish I could go into so much more detail about that. It is a long study to talk about, but I've put something in your notes. Um, I've put a link in there to the Bible Project, which is an extraordinary resource for us online. If you go to YouTube, you go to the Bible Project, there is an entire section there on spiritual beings. And I just encourage you to watch it. Short videos, three minutes, five minutes, or whatnot, to get a good, broad understanding of what this wor world looks like. Now, what's clear from all of this is that Paul is saying that there is no neutral territory in this struggle between good and evil. So there's, there's no Switzerland from World War II. Essentially, the battle lines have been drawn, and you are on one side of this battle. We are in a war. Now, it's important to understand uh, and to know who we are struggling against. But it's also important to understand who we aren't struggling against. Paul says that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not in a war against people. Ultimately, we're in a spiritual battle. And, and I don't know about you, but when I spend time on the news or spend some time on social media, it seems to me that a lot of people who, who profess to be Christians are struggling against the wrong enemy. They, they seem to think that our, our greatest battle is actually against flesh and blood people. And they're spending an, an enormous amount of energy in this ground war against people. And they turn those who oppose them into their enemies rather than turning to them the other cheek. They attack, they accuse, they mock, they minimize. But they forget that the person that they're attacking is someone that Jesus was dying to save. And they forget that the person they're attacking is someone that Jesus loves just as much as them. We are not in a battle against flesh and blood. We are in a battle in what's called the heavenly places. So when you read the Bible, you get this sense that there's this entire spiritual realm that's behind the curtain of the material realm where we find ourselves. And this spiritual realm and the material realm are both very different. However, they are not mutually exclusive. The spiritual realm and the material realm actually intersect they overlap. There's like this, this connection there that's between them that is, that is very porous. And, and so these spiritual beings, even though they belong in the spiritual realm, they have the ability to influence us here in the material realm. So one thing that one way you might think about this is, is a control room and a factory floor. Okay? So the control room directs and influences what happens on the factory floor. Dials are set. Things are set into motion. Processes are created. And Yet those who are on the factory floor still have a certain amount of freedom, certain amount of autonomy. The heavenly places are like the control room for what's happening here on the ground floor. And what Paul seems to be saying is that the battle is not on the factory floor. The real battle is actually up in the control room. And often when we think about this um, this idea of the struggle, we often think about uh, it in individualistic terms. Okay, we are, we, are, we are Western thinkers. We are strongly individualistic. And so oftentimes we think about it, it's just a demonic force attacking me as an individual, an individual demon attacking me as an individual person. And of course, there's truth to this. I mean, Paul would say, you know, he was harassed by a messenger from Satan. There are people in the Gospels who are tormented by individual demons. We know that this is true. But it is important to keep in mind that this struggle is not just individual. 
This struggle is in fact collective. You might even say sometimes systemic. That the struggle involves world institutions and systems. And this is why Paul uses the language of authorities, rulers, principalities, powers, to describe these hidden demonic powers. Paul is essentially connecting these spiritual forces to broken cultural institutions and systems. Do you know, you know that Satan is described as the god of this world? He's also called the ruler of the kingdom of air by Paul. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. So the world that we live in, this world system that we are part of, is the devil's domain. It's his playground. It's his kingdom. And of course, we know from Scripture that Satan's not the ultimate ruler of all things, right? We know that God is infinitely powerful. Only God is sovereign. And we know that Jesus, of course, is seated at the right hand of God, and the Father has put all things under his feet. We know that to be true, but we also know that Satan has been given a very short leash to rule in this world. So, it's not hard for us to imagine Satan at work in institutions and systems in our world. I mean, think about it. Some of these are pretty easy to recognize. Let's talk about the porn industry. Okay, here is an institution that is destructive, that is destroying lives. Uh, human trafficking. Here's another example of an institution. Maybe even some of the isms of our world. Consumerism. Racism. Idolatrous nationalism. Okay? Um, even our social media institutions lately have come under fire. Uh, you may have been watching the news and you may have noticed that a, a whistleblower has come out from Facebook and has accused them of, of leveraging hate for profit. Also has accused them that they have ignored the data of how Instagram is destroying the emotional health of young women. So there are structures and systems that are causing damage in our world. Um, and perhaps there are sinister beings in the control room affecting what's happening here on the ground floor. So the work of these evil hidden powers, the point is that it's, it's not just individualistic, okay? It can also be collective. It can also be systemic. Now, don't hear me wrong this morning, okay? This doesn't mean that all institutions are bad or that every part of every institution is somehow bad. Because in our current cultural climate, we seem quick to just throw institutions under the bus, right? We like to blame our problems on the institutions. We like to blame our problems on systems rather than individuals. Institutions and systems are important. I think we can all agree on that. We need institutions. We need systems. I mean, anybody who denies that they should get rid of systems should stop using their toilet, okay? That's a system, right? We should ignore all traffic lights. You should throw your phone in the garbage. Okay, so all of these systems are part of our world. We know that to be true. They're not all bad. But institutions and systems are never perfect. And many institutions are broken, and some institutions are evil, or at least close to evil. And this is especially true, the Bible will say, if these institutions or these systems are rooted in idolatry and injustice. Now, if you want a couple of biblical examples of systemic evil power, just look at Galatians 4. I mean, it takes some time to read it a little bit later on. But Paul connects his religious system of Judaism to what he calls weak and miserable forces. Or jump over to 1 Corinthians 10, and Paul the Apostle will say, hey, the pagan temple system, stay away from that. Why? Because it's under the influence of demonic powers. Now, most of the work of demonic powers in our world typically go unnoticed, okay? And this is because they deal in what's called deception. 
Jesus called Satan the father of lies. I mean, he would say that lying is, is actually Satan's native language. So let's look at what Paul writes. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what he says. He says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as what? As an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So identifying the works of evil powers, I mean, that's not always easy. And sometimes I think, I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit hesitant to just say, that's demonic, right? Because that's, you know, that's quite an accusation to make, to call something demonic. Um, so it requires prayerful discernment. It's not something you just do lightly. But we need God to open our eyes so that we can ultimately spot the counterfeits in our world. On top of all that, I think it's also important that we are grounded in the truth of God's word so that we can spot the counterfeit. Hey, listen, if you go to banks and you ask them, how, how do you train your employees to spot counterfeit bills? What do you think the answer is? Is their answer they spend all their days playing with counterfeit bills? No, they spend all their day playing with real dollar bills. Because if they're playing with real dollar bills and they know what a real dollar bill looks like, smells like, and feels like, they'll very easily be able to spot the counterfeit. The way that we spot counterfeits is not by looking at counterfeits. The way we spot counterfeits is by looking at the truth. Right? And the same holds true in terms of determining what are the counterfeit, what are the forces of evil that are out there that look so good, but they're not quite right. It's by paying attention to God's truth and being immersed in it. Now, I think it's important this morning to just pause for a second and answer a question that uh, I think some of you might have, and I think it's a legitimate question. Your question might be framed like this. You might be wondering, Rob, how can any reasonable person believe in all of this stuff? I mean, isn't it just kind of superstitious to believe in all this nonsense? I mean, have you, have you been reading too many Frank Peretti novels, Rob? Or, you know, you've been spending time watching shows like Supernatural or whatnot? You know, I mean, you know Buffy the Vampire Slayer? How, how can any reasonable person actually believe in all of this stuff? And, and let me just say, I think it's a great question. I understand where you're coming from. But let me first respond with another question. Do you believe in God? Because if you do then you already believe in a supernatural spiritual being. One who is invisible, all-powerful, and who influences the events and happenings within this world. So if you believe in God, it is not a huge category leap for you also to believe in celestial beings or spiritual beings like angels and demons. Here's another question. Do you believe in Jesus? Because if you do, then you have to consider that Jesus himself believed in demonic forces. Jesus confronted them. Jesus cast them out. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil in the, de in the desert, right? So, so if Jesus believed in them, why is it so difficult for us to believe in them? Could it be that the reason we struggle to believe is because we've become what I would call a functional materialist? In other words, in theory... You believe in spiritual beings, but functionally, in practice, you never pay attention to any of it. You don't, you don't actually live as though it's true. And here's the reality. The reality is, is we're, we're immersed in a materialistic culture, okay? And when you're swimming in this culture, this culture ultimately continues to rub off on you. And so... In our world, we rarely frame what's happening according to spiritual forces. I mean, you're never going to hear on the news, tonight at 10 o'clock in downtown Edmonton, demonic forces have influenced the man to go into a bank and roll. You never hear it like that, right? You're not going to hear about it. It's always from a materialistic framework, right? 
Demons don't intrude in our world of eating Cheerios, working at the office, shuttling kids to activities, or surfing social media. We are theoretical theists, but we are functional materialists. And the question is, is, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? Because what if it's actually very dangerous to hold this position? I like what Peter writes in his letter, 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I don't know if you ever watched like Untamed Kingdom videos on, on YouTube. Um, you know, you might want to just Google lion chases gazelle sometimes, or maybe not if you have a weak stomach. But anyway, the, the lion doesn't hunt the gazelle that's on high alert and ready to run. That's not the one he's after. The lion's looking for the gazelle that's not paying attention. The gazelle that's just kind of, I don't know, just minding my own business. You know, he's got his nose in his phone. That's the one that the lion wants. And before he knows it, bang, he attacks him, he takes it down. So consider this. If Satan's greatest power is deception, why would he try to be obvious? Wouldn't he rather instead try to stay hidden? You know, years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote this brilliant book. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And I don't know if you've read it. If you've read it, I encourage you to read it again because I just read it again, and it's just fantastic. Um, but in The Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional collection of letters that are written from an older demon named Screwtape to his younger nephew, who's called Wormwood. And, and Screwtape, through these letters, is giving sage advice to Wormwood about how he can continually manipulate this human patient who is under his care, okay? And, and in one letter, he talks about uh, the importance of keeping humans in the dark about their existence. I want to read the, a section from the letter. Um, uh, I'll, I'll do my best C.S. Lewis uh, accent in this. Uh, so he'd say, our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are, we are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. I do not think that you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. See, Satan's best tactic to a culture of materialists and skeptics ultimately would be, well, to keep us in the dark so that he can work covertly behind the scenes rather than overtly as he would in other parts of the world. And so Peter tells us, just as Paul says to us, be sober-minded and watchful because the enemy is looking for those who are not paying attention. Well, here's the second response. The second response is to take a stand. You'll notice several times in the text, Paul actually uses this phrase. He says, stand against the evil one. And the thing about standing is standing is ultimately a defensive posture. Paul doesn't say to us, sit on our hands. Paul doesn't say to us, turn around and run away. He says we are to stand, and after we have done everything, to stand. So how are we to stand? Well, Paul says right at the beginning, verse 10, he says, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In other words, 
Our power to stand, our ability to stand, does not come from us. It comes from the Lord who gives us this ability to stand. And as we stand, it's important that we remember that we are standing on the winning side. What we know from Scripture is that our enemy has been defeated, but our enemy has not been destroyed. How is he defeated? Well, let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Here's what Paul says. Paul says that we, the enemy was disarmed through the cross. Verse 13. He says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling uh, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what does it mean that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame? Well, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. But one of the ways to look at it is that when Christ died on the cross, the devil lost his greatest destructive weapon. What was that greatest destructive weapon? It was accusation. See, in Scripture, the devil has been called the accuser of the brethren. Um, he accused Job before God. Uh, we also know that in the book of Revelation, it says that he accuses us before God day and night. But you see, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the enemy no longer has the power to accuse us. He can no longer to say to God that we deserve to die with him. Paul says that when Christ died, God took the legal debt, our sin debt, that was held against us, and he nailed it to the cross. And because of that, we are forgiven. Because of that, we are, we are righteous. Because of that, we are made alive in Christ. And so Satan's fiery darts of torment ultimately have no power over us. The serpent has lost his teeth. But someone would say that, that Jesus not only disarmed the spiritual powers of evil, but he also disarmed the evil powers and structures that were under their control. This is what we'd call the Christus Victor understanding of this text. Remember, while Jesus was on earth, he embodied power in weakness. It says that he emptied himself of divine power and privilege. He became a fragile human being. He took on the nature of a servant. So Jesus' life was, was this, this, this model, this framework of power in weakness. The cross, as we understand it, was a place of shame and horror. So when you were nailed to a cross, a wooden cross, you were put up on this wooden scaffold where, where everybody could eventually watch you slowly suffocate to death. And the purpose of the crucifixion was ultimately to demonstrate the absolute power of Rome and at the same time humiliate its victims. That's what crucifixion was all about. But it was through Christ's weakness that he disarmed the greatest powers of his day. This was actually the great reversal of the cross. So that while it seemed like Jesus was losing, he was actually winning. And you think about it. When Jesus was on, uh, through the cross, he challenged every institutional power of his day. Remember, who put him there? It was the most powerful institutions of his day that placed him there. The religious establishment, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the high priest, uh, the Roman army, Pontius Pilate, King Herod. Each of these had a different part to play in kind of shuffling responsibility from one person to another or one group from another and the kangaroo trials that inevitably led to Jesus' death sentence. The whole proceeding of Jesus' death was corruption on display. 
while at the same time magnifying Christ's righteousness and his humility. So that it actually became clear through all of this. If you read the story, it becomes increasingly clear that these people and institutions existed for their own self-preservation rather than for justice and human flourishing. So the cross of Jesus Christ was victorious over the forces of evil, but also the evil institutions under their influence. It disarmed them. It shamed them. It revealed them for what they were. The cross showed that these, these institutions and these systems were absurd, empty, idolatrous, and even deadly. So Jesus Christ defeated and disarmed the powers of darkness, but he has not yet destroyed them. And we know that to be true from Scripture. Until Jesus comes again, the powers of forces of evil will still have power in this world. And this is why Paul says, hey, you still need to be on your guard. You still need to pay attention. But as believers in Christ, we can be thankful because we know the end of the story. And we know that the cross struck a death blow against Satan and his time is running out. We read this Hebrews 2.14. Here's what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It's talking about Jesus. That through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So what's clear from Scripture is that, that Satan's fate is sealed. His destruction is inevitable. He will be thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur. Revelation teaches us that at the end. After Christ returns and delivers everything to his Father's hands. And Paul wants to make this very clear to the Ephesians. He wants to make it clear to us also. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Friends, Satan is defeated, he's not yet destroyed, and this is the truth that we can stand on. See, where you stand matters. You know, when you're in a battle, where you are standing makes all the difference. And an army can have an advantage or disadvantage based on where it's ultimately standing. You know, it's, un, it's, it's hard to fight when you're standing on unstable or slippery ground. Tactics will teach you that if you stand next to a rock formation, then you have a protected flank, so it's hard to be surrounded. It'll also teach you that if you stand with your back to the ocean, you're in trouble because you have no ability to maneuver to get away. If you stand uphill from your opponent, you have a major tactical advantage, don't you? I mean, just ask Anakin Skywalker, right, who lost his legs to Obi-Wan in a freak lightsaber incident, okay? Where you stand ultimately matters. So where are you standing? Paul says we should be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Are, are you standing in your own power or are we standing in worldly powers? Do we stand in the power of God? Well, here's the third one, the third, third and final uh, response is to use God's strategy. You know, back in, in 2015, the world experienced one of the greatest upsets in sporting history. And I, I've talked about this before, but um, Ronda Rousey, you might remember, was the bantamweight champion of the world. And she had gone undefeated in MMA for five whole years. Previously, she was like a world judo champion. She would, I mean, she would like dominate opponents, taking them all out in the first round. Eleven of her, uh, eight of her eleven wins happened in the first minute of every match. Okay, imagine that. Eight, eight of her eleven wins, she won within one minute. So at UFC 193, she was challenged by the underdog Holly Holm. 
And Holly Holm was never taken very seriously. I mean, Joe Rogan, back when he was commentating, he said uh, Holly shouldn't even be in the fight because Ronda was, uh, was way too experienced for her. Holly would likely get hurt if she fought against him. But on that day, Holly actually shocked the world. If you watch the fight, and it's probably available on YouTube, uh, you will see that she dominated Ronda for the first round, threw her around like a rag doll. And then in the second round, she knocked her out cold with this roundhouse kick, which people has described as the kick that echoed around the world. Now, like I said, I've told you this story before, but what I haven't explained before was how was it that the underdog Holly Holm defeated Ronda Rousey? She defeated her through tactics. She defeated her through her strategy. See, Holly trained for months, specifically prepared to defeat Rousey. She studied Rousey's every move. She brought in opponents who were a lot like Rousey so that she could fight against them. She had a strategy. She had a game plan. Rhonda, on the other hand, was overconfident. She was also distracted, and she was exhausted by all of her different uh, celebrity appearances. But Holly was completely focused, and Holly came prepared, and she had a strategy, and she stuck to it for the whole fight, and in the second round, she knocked out Ronda Rousey. God has given us a strategy to stand against the enemy. And the strategy for us is to put on the full armor of God. Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the enemy and withstand the day of evil. Now, I could take time this morning to break down every different aspect of the armor of God and every different component. We don't have time for that. But it's enough to point out this morning that's uh, something that each of these parts has in common. When you put on the full armor of God, you are effectively putting on Christ Jesus. You are standing in Christ Jesus and everything that Christ Jesus gives to you. In his righteousness, in his truth, in his gospel of peace, in his faithfulness, in his salvation, in his word, in his power that is ignited through prayer. And it's up to each and every one of us, it's up to you and it's up to me to receive these things. It's up to each and every one of us to step into these things, to appropriate them is the uh, specific term. And we do this through faith. It's a continual act of faith to put on the armor of God. By faith, we receive all that Christ has done. By faith, we stand in all that Christ has done. By faith, we call on the name of the Lord Jesus for power. By faith, we go out to meet our enemy. This is how we fight. This is how we stand. Sadly, oftentimes, we take our stand while wearing the wrong kind of armor. We're like David going out to fight Goliath while wearing Saul's outfit. In the past few weeks, we have been talking about two different kinds of power. And if you read James chapter 3, it talks about the way from above, and it talks about the way from below. God has given each and every one of us creative power to bring about human flourishing. God has given his believers, his followers, the Holy Spirit, who gives us the power to change and the power to proclaim his word. But instead, oftentimes, we choose to put on different armor. We choose to do life on our own terms without God in our own power. But even worse, even worse, sometimes we think we can pursue power from below in order to accomplish the work from above. 
So we lean into the world's powers and the world's systems to accomplish God's mission rather than trusting in God's power to accomplish God's mission. And so we become unwitting co-conspirators with the world in its pursuit of power. And we assume that we can do this without that power ultimately corrupting us and corrupting the church. And, and you know, we talked about this last uh, two weeks ago, but one of the things that we've seen in our world with these church scandals is, is this, this desire to, to see the church become powerful through worldly systems of power rather than the truth to be, church to be powerful through weakness and through surrendered life to Christ. I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. If you know the story, at the center of the story, there's what's called the Ring of Power, which gives its wearer not only the power to turn invisible, but it also gives its wearer the ability to dominate other people. This ring was, was created by the Dark Lord, and he's, he's lost it, but he's been seeking it out um, through Middle-earth. And the ring ends up in the hands of, of Frodo Baggins. Frodo Baggins, of course, is an innocent and humble, hare-footed hobbit. And when Frodo learns about the ring's purpose... He tries to give it away. He doesn't want it. So he tries to give it to Gandalf the wizard. And, and I love how Tolkien describes this encounter. Let me just read it for you. Here's, here's Frodo. He says, You were so wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. And his eyes flashed and his face was lit as by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity. Pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. Gandalf is powerful, but he refuses to use the ring of power. And this is because Gandalf's power is ultimately it's found in humility and it's, it's found in compassion, not in strength and domination. And he knows if he takes it, if he takes the ring, he will be corrupted by it. He will be consumed by it. You cannot use the way from below to try and accomplish the work from above and not ultimately be corrupted by it. And I think the church is at its worst when we lean into the world's power rather than trusting in God's power. Our power, friends, it does not come from political might. It does not come from celebrity status. It doesn't come from smoke machines or slick media campaigns. And when we lean into these kinds of power and we trust in these kinds of power, ultimately we end up ignoring God's power. And ultimately it erodes our witness and we dig our own graves. Cross point. We want to be a people who lean into the Lord, a people who are strong in the Lord and in his mighty power so that we can stand against the enemy's schemes so that we can be transformed and we can flourish and that we can bring the gospel of peace to a world that so desperately needs it. And so let me ask you this morning, are you aware of what's happening all around you? Are you willing to stand? And ultimately, where are you standing? What are you standing in? Let's pray together.
Lord, you, you tell us to not be unaware of the devil's schemes. And I, I have to confess before you this morning, Lord, that I, I am sometimes just so caught up into the gears of this material world that I, I am just ignorant of what's happening all around me. And so, God, I, I, I pray, and I hope we all pray together this morning, that we, you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would be aware of what's happening. Lord Jesus, help us to know the truth, that the truth might set us free. Lord Jesus, forgive us and forgive me when I rely on worldly systems of power and I am not strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. God, this morning, I know that among us, there are some of us who are struggling. There's some of us who have leaned into the wrong kinds of power. Or there's some of us who just feel very powerless, who feel beaten down, who feel discouraged, who feel like they're struggling in sin. This morning, Lord, we lift our hearts and our hands before you. And we say to you, Lord, we need your power. And we declare today that we want to be strong in you. We don't want to white-knuckle our way to the finish line. We don't want to trust in other systems and powers that aren't going to get us what we need. God, we need you desperately. And so today we put on Christ. We put on Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord for the victory that has been won, that our enemy is defeated and will be destroyed. And we can trust in you, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.